Welcome back to the Running Wine Mom podcast. I'm your host, Samantha Slinsky, aka The Running Wine Mom. Today, we have a very special episode that will unravel the mysteries of introducing foods to kids and address the challenges parents face during this crucial stage. Joining us today, my guest has dedicated her career to helping children and families navigate the intricate world of feeding and swallowing. Kim Grenowetsky is a renowned pediatric occupational therapist and feeding and swallowing specialist who is the deputy director for a very near and dear program, Solid Stars. She brings a wealth of experience from her work at some of the largest children's hospitals on the West Coast, focusing on neonatal feeding, breastfeeding, and high-risk infants, and pediatric cardiac rehabilitation. Not only does Kim provide valuable expertise to families in hospital settings, but she also extends her support to those struggling with breastfeeding, transitioning to solids, to winning, and oral motor challenges. Today, we'll dive deep into her journey, exploring her passion for empowering parents, promoting healthy eating habits, and fostering children's independence during their feeding journey. So if you're a parent eager to learn more about solid food introduction or facing any feeding-related concerns with your little ones, you're in for a treat. Get ready to gain valuable insights and practical tips from Kim as she shares her expertise and some heartwarming success stories. Welcome, Kim. I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for having me. I'm so excited to have you. And as I was saying, Solid Starts was my Bible for feeding our kids. So I'm so excited to um, learn just about the whole program a little more and just get the word out to other people. So before we start each episode, we have our wine, wine, and win of the week segment. This is where we share our favorite bottle of wine or drink, then about something that has been bothering us and celebrate our recent victories. So grab a glass, take a deep breath, and let's get started. So what is your wine, W-I-N-E of the week? Um, I am, no matter what season it is, no matter how hot, cold, anything, I drink a nice, heavy Cabernet. Mm, that's okay. I love it. <laughs> uh, I actually uh, just last weekend got to spend uh, some time back in uh, San Francisco in the Bay Area and went wine tasting with some old friends. And so mm. I brought back to the Midwest some really delicious Napa mm. wine. Um, so that'll definitely be on the menu for me this weekend. Do you have a favorite Napa cab? So I love Alpha Omega, if anybody okay. is, is okay. familiar. Um, it's definitely my favorite. Awesome. And what is your W-H-I-N-E of the week? The California girl in me that has recently moved to the Midwest is dealing with yet another humongous random summer storm and power outage. So the my toddler is out of school. My My younger one is all, you know, disorganized and very dysregulated because the day is not what it is supposed to be. So we're just kind of floating along and making it up as we go along. But uh, I miss my my nice routine. That's my, yeah. family, my, my wine for today. Um, how about your win of the week? Win for the week. Uh, the baby um, is starting daycare and she's taking bottles at daycare. So that oh. is my big, big win for the week. That is awesome. Congrats. <laughs> um, and I always like to ask my guests, what is uh, one struggle you have overcome leading to where you are now? And what is something that you are most proud of in your life? You know, gosh, this is a tough one. I feel like as many people listening here, we're probably all reparenting ourselves a little bit and um, thinking about how our parents um, influenced how we react to our own children. And I, I knew that, uh, there was always an interesting relationship with my mother and I, but I didn't really dig into the depth of it. And I've recently been doing a lot of work with an amazing therapist to kind of unpack a lot of that. And I, I don't think I realized how much it really impacted a lot of my life um, until now. And uh, I'm very happy that I'm taking the time and for myself to, to learn more about that and to be a better human being and a better parent. Um, 
and one foot in front of the other, but I think making really good progress of just being a, like I said, a better human. Um, and I'm really thankful for that. That's awesome. Congratulations on your progress. And that is just something, you know, in parenthood in general, we, my husband and I talk about it a lot. It's like taking the good and the bad from your childhood and just like trying to make it all better for your kids, which Absolutely. is most important. Um, so this is the running wine mom. So we start a little bit of fitness, a little bit of parenthood, and then we'll get into the nitty gritty of everything. But for fitness, what is your favorite way to stay active? <laughs> Right now, it's chasing a toddler. Um, I uh, Pre-kids, I used to love to run. I was a half marathon kind of person. It was felt like the good length or the good you know distance for me. Really loved to train. It was a really great way to get my energy out when I come home from the hospital after a long day. Um, I have not prioritized taking care of myself like I should post-kids. Um, and I recently have started learning to play tennis. Um, okay. Our next door neighbor's son is a recent high school graduate, and he was a high school tennis player. And so he's taking me out to the to the high school oh, and uh, teaching me to play tennis. So it's giving me a, a reason to spend an hour on myself and run around and um, work on hand-eye coordination, which is a lot harder uh, as an adult than it ever was before. But I mm -hmm. feel like that's uh, my first step into getting back into taking care of myself. I uh, I also used to love high intensity interval training. I loved Barry's boot camp. So if anybody is, oh, a, yeah. is a Barry's person, where I live now, they unfortunately don't have one, which is really a bummer. Um, but uh, I'm hoping to just get my body moving a little bit more on a regular basis and then get back into running. So what are your struggles right now to stay to that are keeping you from staying in the uh, realm that you'd like to be in? Prioritizing sleep. Mm -hmm. <laughs> <laughs> um, we, uh, neither of my, well, I take that back. My toddler is, is not the greatest sleeper. She never has been. So she's still up a lot at night. So we're just tired and the, the baby still nurses a bit at night. And so uh, just not getting good chunks of sleep. So when I do have, um, a little bit of time to myself, I'm using it, checking out, reading a book or yeah. I'm a big fan of really, um, dirty, awful romance novels on my Kindle. So if <gasps> I can just like crawl in bed and read for a little while and, check out i'm doing that instead of instead of taking care of you know moving my body even though i know that if i did move my body i would probably feel better overall so trying to yeah, but, yeah your romances swing. are just a you know uh, what what book are you reading now anything anything <laughs> extra no, I, so i actually just finished something and um <laughs> I'm reading some um, some parenting books. I'm, I'm reading okay. The Emotional Life of the Toddler. Oh, okay. I'll add uh, it to my list. <laughs> yeah. Uh, and then The Highly Sensitive Child are the mm -hmm. two that I have open right now. Um, so I do have to flip-flop between the, the the crappy books and then the things that yeah. you know, I use for work and for my life. <laughs> yeah. I know. I feel like I kind of go like, it's like I'll do, in the summer, I don't list, I don't like read or listen to any sort of like informational books, but in like the winter and stuff that's i feel like when i really get to that now it's like beach reads and, oh totally uh, you know. yep um what do you wish you learned earlier in life about your fitness and nutritional health uh i wish that i knew that my body did not like sugar <laughs> um you know everyone i think in your once you become a, a real adult you kind of start to figure out what it is in your diet that makes you feel cruddy mm -hmm. and um for me it's definitely sugar and it's very easy for me to overload on sugar especially when i'm not sleeping well and i've got two mm -hmm. kids running around in the house and um i notice that when i'm at my lowest i'm like 
you know, popping the cookies and the, the like starburst gummies and all the little like random sweets that add up and add up and add up. Um, my husband and I are known to uh, make four break and bake cookies every single night after the kids go <laughs> down. Uh, so we can each have like a couple cookies in before bed. But it's definitely, uh, I wish I would have known how sugar really was not the best for my mm-hmm. for my body. And I maybe could have uh, developed some other, uh, <laughs> I don't want to call it a coping me- mechanism, yeah. but other, other <laughs> habits, yeah. uh, a, uh, like comfort, um, totally comfort yeah. food or yeah. comfort thing. And what do you think, um, the relationship between mental health and physical fitness is? Oh gosh. <laughs> um, I think there's, it's so connected and even just, this is probably going to tie us into a little bit of my OT work, but as an OT, like the whole basis of our profession is when you participate in occupations or things, your your brain is in such a better place. Um, and that's so very true, um, even just outside of rehabilitative kind of settings. Just when my brain is engaged and active, I feel better. Mm-hmm. Um, I've even been trying to just be the one that takes the dog for the walk, mm-hmm. you know, which is what half a mile around the neighborhood, but it's still like getting my, Something. getting myself moving and it helps me get dressed in the morning. Like yeah. I, I actually put on clothes to get out of the house to move. Um, and I've noticed that I can be so much more productive when I do that. It's, it's, but it's a, it's a little bit of a brain thing about just prioritizing taking care of yourself yeah. like that. I totally agree. Um, yeah. So once you, like, I feel like once you move, it's good, but it's, it's the getting, getting there to move is hard. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. So let's get a little into the parenthood. Tell us about your family. You have two children. Yeah. Um, so I've got two girls. Uh, my oldest, Maeve, will be three next month. Uh-huh. And then uh, my second little one is nine months, Blythe. And uh, my husband, my husband, Will, is a uh, corporate development kind of like financy kind of guy. And uh, we moved to the Midwest about, gosh, it's almost two years ago now to be closer to his family. And uh so Minna and Bop Bop, as Maeve calls them, but grandma and grandpa live about an hour away, which is great. They can be really involved. Mm-hmm. Um, and I can't forget our first child. We have <laughs> a uh, eight-year-old golden retriever who is, uh, who is the first girl of the family who is probably not getting as much attention now as she, uh, <laughs> as she would want. But she's the, uh, the perfect family dog who's just amazingly lazy and um, the sweetest with the kids and also helps clean up all the food that the baby yeah. drops on the floor. <laughs> That's so important too. Uh, yeah. So you're kind of in the same season that I am. My oldest is two and a half and my youngest just turned one. So I yep. totally get it. It is a busy, like, it's funny when you meet other parents that have passed that phase, they mm-hmm. look at you and you tell them your kids ages and they're like, oh, you're in it right now. Yeah, you're yeah. like in it. Yeah. <laughs> That's they're both napping right now. Um, and we're, we're down the shore right now. Um, for the week. So it's just been like nonstop, like with them on the beach, it's no longer just like reading a book. You're like mm. running after them. And it's like, all right. Yep. So this morning we went to the zoo instead. So we're like, it's too busy. We'll yeah. we'll go later today. It's like parenthood is so overstimulating at this point. Yes, <laughs> for sure. What do you think you were least prepared for in parenthood? Probably managing my own sleep deprivation. Mm-hmm. Um, I was prepared for staying calm during tantrums and I was prepared for the, you know, obviously the feeding stuff. And I was prepared for diapers and like, cause I lived in the baby and the, you know, yeah. the kid world for so long, but I didn't realize how cranky and explosive I get when I'm tired. And yeah. I have found myself in the middle of the night being like, oh my gosh, she's scared. 
just take a deep breath. If you were scared, would you want someone to yell at you right now? <laughs> but it's hard. I, it's I definitely, hard. I did not prepare myself for just, even just uh, balancing out being like, okay, I got to check out now because right. I'm spent, like get, get my husband on board. I was mm -hmm. not prepared for that. Like uh, teamwork, I teamwork, guess when it comes yeah. to, to sleep stuff. Yeah. Um, what do you think your parenting style is? We have, if you want to go really um, official, um, we're really big on authoritative parenting. So mm -hmm. lots of boundaries, um, but lots of empathy at the same time. We, we let um, both of our kids make mistakes and we help guide them through those mistakes. Um, and we set pretty firm boundaries and especially, well, you know, we can talk about this when it comes to eating, but like we make one meal for the family and if you don't mm -hmm. want to eat it, that's cool. We are mm -hmm. not the kind of family that brings other food out. Um, we're also the kind of family that supports the big feelings and allows the tantrums to happen. And yeah, it's exhausting, but, uh, there have been times where I've, you know, scooped Maeve up and carried her out of the grocery store and we've sat in the car and, you know, screamed it out for a little while. And, mm -hmm. and then we're the type of family that works through it afterwards. Um, and I think the biggest parenting win for my husband and I is that we've been really, really good at repairing when we've screwed up. Mm -hmm. Um, and we, we all screw up, right? We, mm -hmm. we yell, we, we say things we don't want to, and we've been really focused on trying to express like, that's not how I wanted to react. And I'm sorry I said that, or I, you yeah. know, I wish, I wish I would have done this better. Um, and, and so far our daughter's really reacted well to that. So I'm hoping that we're showing her that we're people that make mistakes and apologize. Yeah. that's, I've a lot of moms that I've talked to and dads, that's like what they want to do too, is they just want to admit when they've done something wrong as well. So the kids don't feel like making a mistake is the end of the world. And that's mm -hmm. something that's really important for them. Um, you know, and that's what I'll say to Willow. I'll be like, I was just really frustrated that, like, you know, how you get frustrated. I get that way too. And, um, you know, just working through it. So, um, what's one piece of advice you would give to other parents? Um, take it, take a deep breath before you say anything. Yes, I feel like, so my, I don't want to use, I don't want to use words I'm not supposed to use on a podcast, but my husband and I always talk about your shitty first draft, Yeah, you know, oh, and what, yeah. you know, and what you, I think that's a Brene Brown term if you've, if you're familiar with her, but, uh, there, the, the thing that you want to say first is always not the thing that you really want to communicate, whether it's with your partner, your kids, yeah. your in-laws, whoever it is. And so I feel like if all of us could just take a deep breath before we reacted or responded, we'd probably all be kinder to each other. Yeah. I love that. Just to kind of like regulate your nervous system. Exactly. Either. Um, all right. So let's get into it. You have a wonderful resume. You are a pediatric OT, a feeding and swallowing specialist, a lactation consultant, and as mentioned, work with solid start. So let's start with pediatric OT. Um, working with children can require a unique approach. How do you tailor your therapeutic interventions to ensure they're engaging and effective for your young clients? Yeah. So the last, um, I would say 10 plus years of my career, I've worked primarily with infants, um, mm -hmm. teeny, teeny tiny babies. And when it comes to engaging with the baby, my number one job is to engage with that caregiver, whoever it may be, whether it's a mom, a dad, a adoptive parent, a grandparent, um, and remind or and, and acting as if the parent, because they are, are the expert in their child mm -hmm. and helping that parent ex tell me the things that they know about their child. Um, like 
my baby loves that pink blanket. Amazing. Let's wrap them up in the pink blanket. Or my baby really likes to be held up on my shoulder. Okay, great. Let's use that as a position before we start whatever we're going to do. Mm-hmm. Um, when I worked with um, older kids or in in more um, in less baby specific settings, uh, it was always a child directed, child led kind of therapy environment. So I might walk in with a plan of we need to work on X, Y, and Z, but I'm going to let the child decide what they want to interact with first, and I'm just going to kind of slowly squeeze in my goals at the the same time, mm-hmm. which is one of the beauties of OT in general. Like the whole idea is that if somebody were to be watching from the outside, it just looked like they were playing. Right. Um, but I've positioned the toy in a way that's getting the goal, you know, getting at my goals, or I've, you know, set up the environment to have them visually scanning in a way that's working on their their visual perceptual skills or something like that. Mm-hmm. And it's kind of the opposite of OT, but we're in a language development study with Princeton University for our youngest to kind of see how that develops. Um, We have video cameras in our house going all the time, which is like crazy. And I'm so excited, you know, to see the results of it. But similar to you, it's just observation Mm -hmm. in their natural habitat, I guess. (laughs) (laughs) But um, for the the OT part, and I'm a health and phys ed teacher too. So I'm so intrigued in like all of that and the the younger movements too. Mm -hmm. So at what age do you think it's important for parents to recognize milestones that like they need the help, like early intervention? I know some people are scared of it. Some people would rather it. Yeah. How do you There's, kind of help parents? Gosh, it's so hard because there's so much milestone anxiety out there, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and even me, I, with my first Maeve, she was born a month early um, mm-hmm. for some pregnancy complications that I had. And I was watching her like a hawk. Oh my gosh, she's not sitting exactly Mm -hmm. how I want her to be sitting right now. She's not crawling yet. And she's fine. She's a very happy, running, jumping, you know, active three-year-old who's meeting all of her developmental milestones in the way that that she should. And I also understand the fact that like I can look at her and know that she's going to get there because of my of my job I can totally Mm -hmm. see as a as a parent with no exposure or experience with this like it's really really Mm nerve-wracking but my what I tell families typically is if you're worried get early intervention Mm -hmm. worst case scenario or I guess best case scenario they come in and they say you know what your baby looks great don't worry about it we'll check it in three months and on the other hand, maybe they start doing some, you know, some work with you, whether it's physical therapy, speech therapy, or some OT, and they do some work with you and your baby, you learn some really great skills, and then your nerves can be, you know, you can get, you can be less nervous about it. I can't tell you how many kids we've discharged from the hospital with early intervention services, and then the parents follow up later, and they're like, I was so proud of my baby because the therapist came and said that everything looks great, and that makes everybody feel good. Right. Um And there's such a benefit to getting in there early. So if you are, for any reason, if you're like, I just feel something is off here, just have somebody take a look. Mm -hmm. Um, There's never any judgment. I've been an early intervention provider. There is never any sort of like, we're never looking at a parent with a, we're never looking down on a parent for getting early intervention involved. Um, Babies all develop on their own timeline and some of them just need a little help. And if we can provide education to the parent to be like, all you have to do is put more toys on the left side, Mm -hmm. you know, like simple little things like that can make such a big difference. Um, Or instead of having them sit like this, let's have them play like this. Small things can make such a huge difference at that age. So um, I'm always a big proponent of just get involved. Most early intervention services are completely covered by the state. Um, And so they may have long waitlist to get involved in the programs. But I would always encourage just like, 
ask the question, get somebody mm-hmm. out there to help. It's completely self-referred. You don't have to have a physician referral. Um, reach out if you need it. So were you originally in school for OT and then added in feeding and swallowing specialists? In yeah. The- yeah. So my, um, my master's degree is in OT and okay. my first job was in a very large children's hospital in, um, Cal- in Southern California. Mm-hmm. And a large amount of my patient population was all kids with feeding issues mm-hmm. um, for a variety of different reasons. Um, some that were in the hospital because they had had surgery and so they were recovering swallowing function. Others were in the hospital because they had diagnoses that made them feel sick all the time. And so they didn't want to eat. So it was more of kind of like a picky eating oral aversion um, kind of thing. So because my caseload was just so heavy in the feeding world, um, I started taking extra, extra trainings and extra coursework, which brought me to kind of fall in love with this area of practice. And it's, it's one of the things that we all do multiple times a day without thinking about it. And I think the most like mind blowing moment for me that it was like, oh my gosh, I have to work in this area as I was working in a, um, in a pro in a group program for some kids that had, um, they had had surgeries on their, their bowels as infants. So as toddlers, they didn't have all of the digestive capabilities as a typical toddler would. So a lot of them needed to have food feeding through tubes and things like that. And we were asking the kids questions like, oh, what do you what do you do at a birthday party? And they would talk about singing and they would talk about, you know, petting zoos and face painting and yada, yada. We'd say like, what do you eat at a birthday party? And so they would just kind of like, huh. And they would look at each other and they just kind of weren't really sure how to answer that question. And that blew my mind Um, because eating, eating is like such an important part of every celebration and every memory of a big Mm -hmm. celebration for me. So um, it just very much lit that fire of like, no, I want, I want kids to love food. I want kids to, to connect over food. Like I love sitting at the table at night and asking my toddler about the random stuff she did at school. Even if half of it makes no sense, I still just love hearing about it. No, it's important. It's so important. It's like such dinner table talk is like such a big part of it was for me growing up and I feel like for so many families and that's what like you just relate the food to like the hat the happiness you're surrounded by absolutely it's like you 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 smell something you're like that reminds me Mm -hmm. of my my grandma's kitchen and that brings Mm -hmm. me back to this moment of baking cookies with her or whatever it is and so that very much like quickly made me realize that that was an area of practice I just loved so deeply um And the more I got into working with the littler babies, it made it very clear that lactation was such a big part Mm -hmm. of that too. And so my additional training in lactation kind of like just roped everything everything. together. And, and even if there's, you know, I, have worked with a lot of babies that either weren't safe to nurse or they, they had swallowing difficulties, but there was such an amazing, beautiful moment of getting that baby with that parent and sharing that experience, even if there wasn't like full milk transfer and eating, but just being able to snuggle that baby at the breast and have yeah. that experience. It's, it's a really, really wonderful um, part of my job. Yeah. I remember with my oldest, I had some issues. I had to meet with a lactation consultant and there was like an, uh, this awesome moment where it like latched and all came together. And literally there was like three or four nurses coming in like, Oh my gosh, <laughs> this is like amazing. <laughs> You're doing it. You know, it was I mean, I was like, okay, I guess I'm doing great. But they were like, they were just as happy because they got to see that. So I'm sure that you get, it's probably so nice, you know, when you get to see the connection. Yeah, it's really beautiful. Um, What are some of the most common feeding challenges you encounter and how do you address those? 
So in my, in my old clinical life, um, you know, cause I, I technically have like a retired from patient care too, mm-hmm. cause I'm doing full-time solid starts at this mm-hmm. point, but in my clinical work, um, in the hospital, the majority of kids that I worked with had, um, either swallowing difficulties because they had had surgery. So like a baby that has had a, had a surgery may have, um, involvement in their, their swallow the nerves that control swallowing. So we have to rehab, um, helping them be able to, to swallow better. Or we have kids on the flip side that uh, don't want to eat because of different medical issues. Um, on the outpatient side or the non-hospital side, you can see things like trouble with chewing, spitting a whole lot, not being able to move the tongue around to move food around, um, only liking certain types of foods or certain textures. So that's like that severe picky eating where they'll only eat things that are brown, or mm-hmm. um, they'll only eat one brand of chicken nugget, you know, in one color box, that kind of stuff, depending mm-hmm. on the, the severity. Um, and in the in home, like more, like not really a diagnosis kind of population, you just see like regular toddler pokiness around food, um, which you and I are probably both going through right now. Mm-hmm. Um, and that is really, really fun for me because it's just developmental. It actually has nothing to do with the food. It has to do with how their brains are learning about communicating what they want and what they don't want and hmm. disappointment. And um, sometimes even just saying, like teaching a family to say something like, that's not what you expected. Mm-hmm. is like mind blowing for the toddler. They're like, oh yeah, you're right. That isn't what I expected, but okay, I guess this isn't so bad. Um, so uh, that's kind of within the regular, like typically developing toddler world. Um, and uh, in the typically developing baby world, we just see babies that are maybe not engaged with solid foods. They really aren't interested. Um, sometimes we need to work on balancing hunger for them. Like they, they're beautiful breastfeeders or beautiful bottle feeder feeders, and they just fill up on so much milk that by the time that, you know, they get to the table, they're like, mm, I just am not hungry for this at all. Yeah. So helping kind of balance out schedules. Um what other kind of things? There's there's a lot of little uh, random pokey things like babies that spit all their food out and never swallow it. Babies that um you know don't want to touch sticky foods or they they don't want to use a utensil stuff like that. So it really kind of can cover like basically anything, anything. that touches food. We we <laughs> we probably can uh, treat it. Yeah, my daughter is definitely in the um like if something's mushy or like not a perfect texture, she starts like gagging when she touches it, and I'm like. Whatever. So with feeding and if they're not feeding properly and they're like not getting and kids aren't getting their proper vitamins and they're hungry, like, what do you think the link of that with mood and behavior is and how can you help that? Yeah. So there's definitely, this is such a, an interesting topic because there's definitely a deep dive on like nutritional deficiency and sleep and like, like iron deficiency and Mm -hmm. impacts, impacts sleep. But then there's also just that if your kid is hangry, of course, mm-hmm. they're going to have more meltdowns. They're not going to be able to regulate as well because when your your body is telling you that you need something, but your child doesn't fully understand how to meet what? that need, right. they're not going to be able to maintain their own balance in their body. Um, mm-hmm. So we we definitely do a lot of work with families about helping kids especially toddlers listen to their body a little bit more it's called interoception so this idea of how does your belly feel right now does your belly feel full or does your belly feel empty does your belly feel just right um i love using little water bottles and i'll do like a little 
animal or a bear or a, whatever their favorite character is, and I'll cut a circle out so it looks like their belly, and I'll put them on the water bottles, and the kids can fill the water bottle up to demonstrate, like, this, this, uh, my daughter loves Pete the Cat. I don't know okay. if, if you guys do Pete the Cat in your house. No. Um, it's, it's a book series. She just loves Pete the Cat. So we can have, like, three different little Pete the Cat bellies, and so she can fill up Pete the Cat's belly to make it look like, what does his belly look like when it's full? And she can take a whole bunch of Cheerios and fill that jar oh, up. Oh, wow. Um, and then what does Pete the Cat's belly look like when it's not full and when it's empty and she'll put like one Cheerio in and then we can try to use those to help her understand like if your belly is I wonder if your belly's feeling empty right now and that's why we're having a hard time doing whatever so I definitely especially in the toddler world have a huge practice or like really do see that happening and work a lot in it when it comes to the littles um, the baby's under under a year my number one thing anytime that parents are concerned about sleep or behavior is milk feeds. Like you've mm -hmm. got to be focused on your breast and your bottle feeding at that point. The solid foods are not what's going to do it. Even if your baby was eating a ton of solid food, it's not complete nutrition. Um, mm -hmm. The complete nutrition is coming from those milk feeds. So if you're ever concerned about, um, especially your baby's sleeper behavior, focus on those milk feeds, make sure they're getting all, getting a full tummy from that and that, that the uh, table food is all just cherry on top. Yeah. Oh my gosh. I love that. Um, the full thing because that again my daughter has that she'll just all of a sudden get like she's just totally out of her own normal mm -hmm. personality and it's like she's definitely probably hungry but I'm gonna try that with the Cheerios filling yeah. up that's such a good I, suggestion and just be I think we should all as parents we need to be more explicit with how we communicate these things to our kids because they don't know so she's mm -hmm. she's clearly hungry you know it mm -hmm. but she doesn't have the language to put to the feeling so even saying something like I wonder if you're hungry Right. Like, I wonder if your tummy is needing food. Mm -hmm. You know, I wonder if you're grumpy because you're hungry. Um, with my very poor sleeping toddler, we say things like, I wonder if you're grumpy because you didn't sleep last night. <laughs> that one's, that one's not connecting. Like, huh. Yes. <laughs> hmm, maybe, but I'm probably just not going to sleep anyway. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> um, how has your role as a mother influenced your role in work? I know there's a lot of people who, for example, I have a friend who's a speech therapist and she's like, I can teach kids how to speak all day long. But when it comes to my own kids, I have like kind of a different approach to it. I mean, mm -hmm. do you find that or do you kind of do you practice what you preach in the way of, in your own home? When it comes to eating, yes, absolutely. Yeah. Um, my husband actually jokes, especially when it comes to like sleep or other things that I struggle with with the kids. <laughs> He's like, why can't you look at that in the same way that you look at eating? And I'm like, I don't know. I can't do it. Um, so yeah, I mean, when it comes to the things that we talk about, like serving the family meal, not short order cooking, um, setting your child up for success, we, we do practice it pretty much to a T. If anything, we are probably more lax on some of the safety stuff as we should be, mm -hmm. um, which full disclosure, I would never recommend to anybody, you know, to do, but yeah, we, we pretty much like carry over this feeding stuff to a T. The, I think the only thing that was not only thing, but definitely something that was a struggle at first for me was when my first was born and she was, she was, late preterm and just like very disorganized and, and struggled with breastfeeding for the first, you know, four, four, six weeks. And I am a lactation consultant. I know what's going on. I know how to fix this. And I still like in my postpartum emotional, yeah, hormonal, just I just couldn't. couldn't. Um, and I was very lucky to that carry up my counterpart at Solid Starts um, is also my best friend and my kids' godparents Aww. or godmother. And so she would be on FaceTime with me 
like walking me through the things that I knew, but knew. my brain just like couldn't get yeah, out. Sometimes you just need that extra, like, okay, yes, I, I know how to do this, but like, I just need someone else to tell me how to, cause you, <laughs> you're already like concerned about so much other stuff. Your brain just can't like comprehend. Exactly. Um, so in regards to lactation consultant, how do you think breastfeeding ties into the introduction to solid foods for infants and mm -hmm. young toddlers? One of the things that we see a lot is that babies that are offered breast milk a lot of times have a little bit of a more expansive palate. And, mm -hmm. I, and I'm not saying this in any sort of like shamey or judgy way. This is just a science thing. Breast milk is... Um, different based on what you eat and drink. So uh -huh. the flavors of your breast milk actually change based on your, your food intake. So um, babies that are given breast milk, even small amounts of breast milk, are just exposed to more flavors before they start solids. There is some research out there that's starting to say that those babies might be more open to trying different flavors than babies who aren't breastfed hmm. or given any sort of breast milk. Does this mean that you're, you know, if you're formula feeding, your baby is doomed? Absolutely not. And the cool thing about our bodies is that there are always like multiple layers of checks. Babies swallow amniotic fluid in utero. Amniotic fluid also tastes like all the different foods that the the pregnant person is eating. So I never knew that. <laughs> pretty cool, isn't it? Yeah. Um, so they actually had studies where they had pregnant um, people eat like tons and tons of like carrots, like hmm. s stupid amounts of carrots. And then those babies ended up like showing more of an affinity for carrots when they started mm. eating solids. So it's like even things like that, like, again, our, our bodies have all of these like multiple checks in. Wow. Um, so that's one kind of like lactation-y kind of thing that goes into to solids. But then the other thing that we see a lot too is that breastfeeding on demand is so awesome because like baby doesn't eat, you just, you know, nurse them. You could right. always bottle feed on demand too. There is no reason you don't you can't do that. But we do see sometimes in our older kids, so like 12, 18, even two-year-olds that are still nursing a lot, sometimes that gets in the way of eating. I nursed my daughter until my first daughter until two. I'm one of those extended breastfeeding type mm -hmm. people um, that worked for us. It does not work for everybody. But there were times where I had to say like this, like nursing's not available right now because it's dinner time because otherwise she would just skip dinner and only nurse. Okay. Um, so there's definitely a sometimes a little bit of a boundary that you have to set a little bit around nursing right. and solids, um, which can uh, totally be the case for for bottles too. But a lot of times those toddlers are already off bottles and they're, mm -hmm. they're maybe still doing Doing an extended nursing. Um, so those are just kind of two things that we do see frequently when it comes to breastfeeding and, and solids and eating. But. Wow. Uh, yeah. I, I'm like baffled about the amniotic fluid thing. Isn't that and I cool? mean, that's so cool. Sorry to my kids for all the stuff I eat, but hey, I guess it gave them a better palate, right? Yeah. <laughs> um, all right. So I want to get into Solid Starts. Um, this is an incredible resource that you're involved with. It's just a simple app, if you have never heard of it, designed to guide parents on the intro to food. There's also different programs on their website. It focuses on exploring foods through all five senses, promoting a diverse and nutritious diet. I use this program with both of my children. And again, I just can't even begin to explain how it gave me such confidence in feeding the kids. I did both of them, um, as I mentioned to you before we started recording the 100 Foods Before One, which was such like, I'm a, a competitive person and it was such like a good thing. Okay, what am I going to feed the kids this week? And kind of gave me different um, ideas, but just in general, the 
the app was just so user friendly. So um, as we get started into this, I'm gonna we're gonna learn about the ins and outs of the apps, and I'm so excited to talk about it. I know I explained a little bit of Solid Starts, but why don't you give us a more in depth explanation of what it is? Yeah, absolutely. So Solid Starts was initially started by a parent, a mom, um, who had a older picky eater severe pick eater. And she, when she had her twins, she was like, I just, I want to do this another way. Um, with her first child, she was nervous and anxious to, to the point of, of frozen when it came Mm -hmm. to feeding her son. And she was really, really nervous about choking and really, really nervous about nutrition. And so she really held him back from experiencing food in a really interactive way. Um, he was spoon fed, um, watery purees for, 18 months, I think, maybe even, all, yeah, I think it was 18 months. And he really, really struggled with chewing, with it getting exposed to or being willing to eat other foods. And she went through tons and tons of feeding therapy to get him to where he is now, where he still struggles, but he, you know, can eat so many foods and is doing great. So when her twins were born, she was like, I just want to do something different. And she started researching. Um, and she came, she came across baby led weaning or what, what Mm -hmm. is, you know, now known as baby led weaning, which is essentially just the idea of letting your kids self feed from the beginning. Um, it can be finger food. It can also just be self feeding with a spoon or letting them get their hands messy with the purees and putting those in their mouth. So just like letting baby take the lead. Mm -hmm. So with that, she brought in a whole team of us to help her build solid starts. Um, It started with Carrie and I, who are both um, feeding therapists, occupational therapists. And since that, we have brought in a pediatric allergist, a pediatric gastroenterologist, uh, a dietitian. We have um, a speech language pathologist. We have editors and food and culture people and you name it, we've got, we've got it covered. So we've kind of like hit every single avenue of what, in me, like what food is for kids. And we have put together this incredible um, platform. So our platform has first and foremost, it has um, courses and resources for parents. So we have courses on starting solids, courses for dealing with toddler, regular toddler eating stuff, courses for picky eating. And we also have guides. So like you had mentioned, the 100, 100 days guide, like we have a guide if you want to know exactly what food to serve your baby for every single day for the first 100 days of their eating, great, we've got that for you. Um, if you more just somebody that wants ideas of great foods, we've got a guide for that. If you're somebody that's, um, you know, really nervous about allergens. We've got a guide that specifically talks about introducing allergens that was um, developed by our award-winning pediatric allergist. So we kind of like touch so many different pain points in different ways. Another beautiful, very important part of Solid Starts is that anything that we have is free for a parent if they are unable to afford it. So we have a really, really robust economic need program. All you have to do is fill out a form on our website and any of our resources are completely free. That's amazing. So, So Jenny always jokes that she never wanted to make an app And uh, the app has now become like such an incredible thing for parents. Mm -hmm. Um, And the app is essentially our free food database on an app for your phone. So our database, which is written by um, a feeding therapist like me or Carrie, the, the dietitian, the food and culture writers, the pediatrician gastroenterologist, we all um, look at all these entries and we look at where the goal is to get every single food in the world into the database. 
So it can tell you a little bit about the food, whether it's an allergen or not, how to prepare it, and then how to cut it to be safe for your baby at every single age up to up to three. Um, and so that's available on our website, but it's now also available on an app. The app's completely free and you can just be like, hmm, what do I have in the fridge? I have strawberries. Great. I'm going to look up strawberries. You look up strawberry and it gives you a diagram of exactly how to cut it for every single age. Um, and now we have recipes in the app. So if you're like, I have no idea what to cook tonight, you can, you know, it, it'll pop up something random or you can look up a um, like I've got pork chops and you can type pork in and then it'll bring up recipes for pork, which is super cool. Um, there's also a subscription feature on the app if you're interested where you can like track things like allergic reactions. But that's all optional. You don't have to. If you don't want to subscribe, you can just use it as basically the database on the go, which is really, really cool. I think I looked at the guides before I got the app. I think the app might've came out just around the time that my daughter was born, but maybe not. I don't know. Um, but it was just like when we were out to eat, I remember like string beans. I was like, I don't know, how do I feed her string beans? And I literally looked it up and like, I would have cut it a certain way and that's not the way that it was. And that was just so, it was such a relief to know that like someone was guiding me on how to do it the proper way right at my fingertips. Yeah. And then that, and we just wanted it to be easy mm -hmm. and accessible. And it is so easy. Um, and then the other, the other like arm of solid starts that we just launched is a professionals facing section. So we're doing continuing education courses for pediatricians and nurse practitioners and feeding therapists and dietitians. And um, that program is growing every single day. And it's really a dream come true from my perspective of being able to bring this information to the people that need it the most. Um, because pediatric healthcare providers are asking for and begging for this training, this kind of training. And so we're really happy that we can provide that too. That's awesome. So how did you get so lucky to be involved as one of the first people? Yeah, lucky is, is, is an understatement, but uh, <laughs> Carrie and I, the other um, therapist on the team, we were running a very small Instagram account um, okay. because we were teaching a lot. So we uh -huh. were, um, and this was pre-COVID, uh, yeah. you know, we, we used to, you know, we were going all over California and into all over the country teaching on baby led weaning with kids with special needs, on swallowing and just doing continuing education courses for therapists. And one of the ways that we would market our courses was through Instagram. Uh -huh. um, and with doing that, we also started being like, oh, you know, there's some really interesting um, content that we could put together. And it's it's so funny now that we work for this giant social media platform that mm -hmm. our little 4,000 followers that we used to uh, do our content for every day. Um, but our goal was always to not just talk about baby lip weaning or to talk about eating. We really wanted to say, this is why you should do this this way. Mm -hmm. or this is the research behind X, Y, Z, or this, let's talk about this new study that came out and what this means to you. Um, and so we were really trying to have a evidence-based platform to the best of our ability. And Jenny saw that and said, I'm really interested in this. Like, this is the why behind all of this. I want to talk. Um, and so she reached out to us and we just started chatting and she was definitely the brains and the know-how of how to get our word to the masses mm -hmm. and she was like hey here here you guys go let's let's teach let's be there let's show up for now almost three million people which I is just know. amazing i mean obviously i followed you guys forever but when i recently looked i'm like i can't believe they have almost i mean i can believe that you have yeah. almost three million followers but like what an incredible accomplishment that's yeah. like insane never in a million years did we think that it was going to grow i mean i'm sure jenny had her like she she knew it would but carrie and i always joke we're like we were just these little you know <laughs> yeah. little feeding therapists that we're talking about talking about 
loving boundaries around yeah. toddler mealtimes and suddenly we're, you know, talking to 3 million Changing people. It's, it's the, crazy. Yeah, the whole, because it's, you know, and when you talk to, you know, my parents, they, like they have no clue. They're, they're like, oh, you feed, put the cereal in the bottle. You know, they're, they, yep. and I'm so um, into like all of that kind of stuff, research and what's the best way to do it. And just finding it, like I said, was just, I had never even heard of baby led weaning until I had my daughter. Um, mm -hmm. And I just, and like you were saying, when you just, you feed your family the same meal every night, like 90% of the time we're doing that. We last night went to like a fancy five-star restaurant down here. Both the kids sat, they, they had of course pasta, but they also had salmon and like, mm -hmm. they're just such, and I truly have you guys to thank for that because we weren't afraid to bring them out and just give them what we had. And we were able to, and that, you know, they don't like everything, but like, right. as none of us do, right. We had a couple years ago when we were down the shore, we're, we're out with my whole family and we're giving Willow calamari and like this and that. And this guy behind us turns around. He's like, excuse me, how old is your daughter? And I was like, she's nine months old. He like turns to his wife. He's like, our grandchild doesn't eat this stuff. What? Why is not <laughs> our grandchild eating this stuff? I'm like, well, I use this app. <laughs> I love that. Um, so how, can you explain like for people that may not know, what's the difference mainly between baby led weaning and traditional feeding methods? Uh, so the traditional feeding method is essentially what the Gerber handout get, mm -hmm. that you get from the doctor says. Mm -hmm. um, you go through stages of purees, starting with a really watery puree that's basically like the same consistency of milk. It's offered on a spoon and given to the baby and the baby sucks the puree off the spoon and then swallows it. Um, at some point during the first year, you're supposed to introduce, um, they like to go to a meltable solid. So something that you put in your mouth and then saliva kind of makes it soft so you don't really have to chew it um, and then on to smaller pieces of food and then eventually on to table food the idea is is that baby always has special food from the beginning um, and you continue to move through these phases um, baby led weaning in the purest form is and if you were to read don't talk to the facebook groups because they're going to disagree with me but if you actually <laughs> read if you read jill rapley's book and talk to her because we have talked to her multiple times because she's on our advisory board. Um, baby led weaning is letting your baby take the lead with feeding from the beginning, no matter what the food is, no matter what the consistency is, letting your baby take the lead. So letting them feed themselves from the beginning. Um, the beauty about child development is that around six months of age, they're showing the ability to pick up food and bring it to their mouth. So why are we preventing them from mm -hmm. doing that? Um, we add the additional component of this of sharing foods that are important to your family from the beginning because then you set the habit in your house of making one meal um like we had enchiladas this week it was you know our dinner story like i posted it for dinner last night and my nine-month-old had a little bit of enchilada my toddler had some enchilada and we all had enchiladas like mm -hmm. there wasn't like i'm making the toddler one thing and i'm making the baby something else and i'm making my husband and i something different that works for a lot of families and that's absolutely fine that was just something that I didn't have time for in my house. Right. Um, and the research does tell us that the sooner you, your child is in the family meal, the more likely that they'll eat those family foods later on. Mm -hmm. um, 
so baby led weaning again is just baby self-feeding from the beginning cutting food in a way that their hands can appropriately grasp and bring it to their mouth and then slowly changing the shape based on what their skills are um, so something that tends to confuse people is why we start with baby led weaning you start with big pieces of food and then you go to smaller ones when there's a a logic for most people to think like no we should start small because that's easier right the thing that we know about self-feeding or that we know about eating in general is that self-feeding is what decreases choking risk the most. Mm -hmm. This was actually mm -hmm. first developed um, or first figured out in nursing homes because when nursing home residents fed themselves, they choked less. And when nursing home residents were fed by attendants, yeah. there was more choking. So that's kind of where this, this whole concept started and it has slowly moved down into the pediatric literature as well. And so what we know is that babies need to feed themselves. Well, anybody that has a six month old baby knows that the only thing that they can do with their hands is kind of grasp things in a, in a big way. Mm -hmm. So food also needs to be big enough that they can grasp it and bring it to their mouth. The beauty of this for a brand new eater is that it provides lots and lots of input to the mouth. So a mouth that's not used to food now has this giant thing pushing and prodding and poking. So the brain's mm -hmm. like, oh, I get that. I see that. I understand how to move that. I'm not going to lose it in my mouth. Right. As they, get, um, as they get older and they develop more fine motor control, we can give them smaller pieces of food. And the theory is that they've had bigger pieces. So their brain's now kind of understanding what food is like. So they're more likely to find that smaller little piece in their mouth. Um, as opposed to a brand new eater with a small piece of food in their mouth, they're like, what is this? I have no idea what, how to move it around. I can't find it. My tongue mm -hmm. can't figure it out. Um, so typically it's big pieces of food for our littlest ones nine to 12 months, it's more bite-sized pieces. And then after that, you can, there's a lot of flexibility in what you can do after that. Yeah, that was definitely the biggest um, like shocker for when we told the grandparents, like, no, you have to give them a big piece of food rather than the tiny one. They're like, but they're going to choke on yep, it. And yeah, I'm like, so that's what that, everybody says. Yeah. They're, um, you know, their esophagus is so small. Like it's not going to get lodged in there if it's that big as well, which I feel like is the other thing that people I didn't think about. I forget where I learned it from. But. Yeah. Yeah. So we all have two tubes in our throat, um, yeah. one for breathing, which yeah. is the one that we worry about when it comes to choking and yeah. then one for swallowing, which is where yeah. the food goes. And the breathing tube is about the size of a drinking straw. So it's mm -hmm. very small. And we've got tons of protective mechanisms that basically cap off that tube when we swallow. So for something to actually choke us, it has to be small, mm -hmm. firm, round or tapered to plug that hole. So like a giant piece of steak is not going to fit in that hole, even if we, <laughs> even if we wanted it, it to be tried. Yeah. Um, so we just, that's why we avoid things like grapes and cherry tomatoes right. and things that are like hard candies are one that scare me. And I found, actually found my nine month old pulling off the, um, the stopper, like on the door, the door stopper thingy. Oh, yeah. Like there's a little oh, plastic yes. thing on the end of that. And I saw her pulling that off and I was like, Oh, that is terrifying to me. Yeah. Um, cause that's like exactly the size and the shape that's going to, that would not be going, if it were to be going the wrong direction would not be safe. Oh my gosh. Yeah. So, um, you obviously have, you have all of these professionals involved and you have an advisory board. How do you ensure that this, the accuracy and safety information is up to date and, <laughs> and for parents 
comfort to know that. Yeah. So I think the thing that's updated the most frequently is allergy information, mm -hmm. uh, mostly because the allergy literature changes so frequently. Um, this is absolutely not my area of practice, but I mm -hmm. know that our, um, our allergist just updated the peanut recommendations because I think new research came out like within the last six months on peanut introduction. So okay. all of that changed. Mm -hmm. Anytime something new comes out in the allergy community, our allergy information is, is updated pretty much real time. Mm -hmm. um, we have an in-house tech team. So essentially like Dr. Bajwala can send an email and be like, we need to change this right now and they can do it immediately, which is super cool. Mm -hmm. um, when it comes to the how to cut recommendations, we um, we base those recommendations on, like I was saying, a baby's control, um, gross motor and fine motor control. And then our experience as, as therapists in terms of what their oral motor skills can be. When we get a lot of feedback from parents that things are going well or not going well or or um, we even start playing around with the presentations on our own with our own kids, we mm -hmm. will immediately make changes as well. Like, for example, I brought up strawberries earlier, but strawberries like a big, big, juicy strawberry is great cutting off the tapered end makes it even safer. So then we mm -hmm. updated the recommendations to say, hey, if you want it to be even safer, cut off the end. Um, so we try to update these things anytime we get tons of feedback on a certain food. Or like I said, if, if I'm playing around with it with my daughter and I'm like, oh, this seems like it would be a little bit better if I did this. And then we'll send that out to our team who has tons of tons of babies themselves, mm -hmm. um, as well as the, the babies that we have as our quote unquote baby models in our program. Um, we'll say, can you test this out this way and, and, and send us a video so we can watch and, and um, see how the baby's managing it so we can literally change it real time, which is amazing. And I know as we did talk about the choking aspect, but I know so many of my friends when they're feeding their babies, they're like, I'm just afraid they're going to choke. Like how, how can they get over that fear? Is there any words of wisdom you would have besides the science of it? Cause it's like, you know, no, they're not going to choke on this big piece of steak, but they're still scared to give yeah, it. Yeah. Yeah. Totally get that. Um, fear is so fear is something that drives so much of what we do as parents. Right. Um, I think something that many families, so two things, number one, learn, um, learn the physiology, learn so you know what's going on, like cognitively. I know it's very hard to, to ignore what our brain is telling us, even when it comes to taking care of ourselves, right? Mm -hmm. It's very, very easy to ignore what our brain's telling us. Um, but learn about how babies chew, learn to chew, how babies swallow, how our bodies work, even just from a very simple perspective. Uh, mm -hmm. We have a, a chapter in our course that literally goes through the anatomy just so you can be like, oh, I see. Okay, at least it makes sense. Is it going to look different when my kid's doing it? Absolutely. But at least there's like a, you know, Visual, a seed planted sir. in there. Right. The second thing that I think is really, really meaningful for most parents is that the media makes choking seem so much more of an issue than it really is. Mm -hmm. I am in no way, shape or form downplaying the fact that a child dying or having a severe medical emergency because of choking. I, I don't want to downplay that at all. That right. is terif terrifying and no child should ever have to go through something like that. But the media will say things like one child dies of choking every five days. That makes you feel like it's terrifying. But if you right. look at but if you look at the numbers overall, that means seventy-two children die a year which from choking. In all, right. Which in all of the you know, children that are born I mean, there's more right. than that born in one hour a day. Yes, exactly. And they're more likely to and again, I can I hate talking about these things because it's just it makes me feel icky inside. But our children are more likely to be injured in a car mm -hmm. or, you know, walking down the street. There's just so many things that are 
that are more dangerous. Um, dangerous, but but it just seems like we can control this thing about choking. So I think anytime I start to feel a little bit nervous, I like to pull up that choking data and remind myself like, okay, this is less this is less prevalent than the media wants me to believe. Um, and I'm doing everything I can to decrease risk in the same way that I put my child in an appropriate car seat and I buckle them right. in and they're, and they're, you know, my toddler's going to be rear facing until she goes to college. Yeah. And there's only so much we can do to mitigate risk because our kids have to eat. They mm -hmm. can't be on pureed food forever. <laughs> um, and so the longer a child gets used to eating purees, the more likely they're going to use those skills to try to eat chewable foods. Mm -hmm. when, oh, you get, okay. when you give a baby a puree, <clears throat> they suck it off the spoon and they swallow it, which is the same skill set that they use to drink from a breast or a bottle, right? Mm -hmm. You don't want them to do that with food. Mm -mm. And so the longer we teach them that skill, the more likely it is that they're going to try to do that with food. Hmm. That makes a lot of sense. And our 12, 15, 18 month olds actually need the nutrition from food. So we want them to have the skills to be able to eat the table food, right? We want them to be able to eat the kale, to eat the pasta, whatever it is we're giving them, because that nutrition is actually really important. So the, the therapist in me says, I want my kid to practice as much as they possibly can when they are not mobile. They are stuck right. in that stuck in that darn high chair. <laughs> yeah. um, I have full control over the situation and they have really great protective mechanisms. So let's build as much skill as we possibly can. It's like it's like the balance bike, right? We're like right. using the balance bike and and when they need to put the pedals on when they're 12, 15, 18 months, I want them to be really, really skilled with the bike mm -hmm. um, before we are required to do that. So I don't know if that helps anybody it or does. not but those are those are kind of my like immediate thoughts right i mean yeah that's so i mean i again didn't even think about slurping of a spoon type of that they're not they're not gaining the they're not it's not just going to come to them they do have to build up no matter how long you wait yeah totally um, there's like this perception that they just like wake up one day and know how to chew right <laughs> yeah and they definitely don't and then i think i also read about how the gagging is similar to like the, the, this was like helpful for me the gagging is similar to when a baby starts trying to walk they're not just gonna mm -hmm. get up and walk they're gonna fall and they're gonna learn and and that's kind of how the gagging process goes where it's like they're not choking but they're learning Exactly. And and the, the gag is is the body's way of being like, nope, that didn't get that got right. a little too far back. You haven't chewed it enough yet. And so it's like that. We like to call it instinctive fumbling because mm -hmm. like they're, they have the instincts to know what to do, but they're also kind of screwing it up. And yeah. the, the gag is there to help them stay safe. It's like just in the same way as like your kid's going to fall off their bike and they're going to fall off. Like my daughter fell off a chair in the, in the dining room this morning. I was like, what are you doing? Yeah. Um, but you know, toddlers. Yes. Um, but like yeah. those things are going to happen and they learn from those experiences. Mm -hmm. And so the more opportunity we give them to kind of fumble through it and figure it out, the stronger their skills will be. Um, there's some really interesting research just starting. We talked to a speech therapist PhD researcher who's looking at chewing skills in babies that were started on chewables early versus later. And she's actually finding some really cool data to show that those kids that were chewing early actually have better oral motor skills later on. That's so um, interesting. It's, it's very, very new and early research. But when she started talking to us, we were like, oh my gosh, please yeah. keep us posted. This is so cool to hear. Well, I wonder if my the program the research that I'm in will find any of that too, because they're seeing how we're feeding our kids and mm -hmm. they'll see how the language develops. That's so interesting. Yeah, it's really it makes interesting. a lot of sense. I will let you know if they if I hear anything from that. Totally, as well. yeah. 
Um, the other thing um, a lot of parents say, like what before I took, I was involved with your program was like, you have to introduce a specific food every three days, but yours is just allergens. I think like once a week or every four days. What is the importance of around that, I guess, yeah. that you can introduce everything? And so, so the old recommendation that was based on no research whatsoever was mm -hmm. introduce one new food every three days. Mm -hmm. So, or one new food every week, something like right. that. Yeah. If you do that, your baby's going to get like 30 foods total mm -hmm. in their, in their six months, in their first six months of starting to eat. We know from the literature, the more flavors, textures, consistencies that a baby is, ex is exposed to during the early stages of, of solid foods, the better, or the more likely that they will be to eat things later on. So the research mm -hmm. tells us like variety is key. So that idea of waiting, waiting those days, you know, it's like wasted time, it's wasted of. time. Yeah. From the allergy literature, we also know that allergies technically can develop at any time and they commonly get worse with each exposure. So there is like a piece of understanding there of like, oh, you should give something for three days because, oh, by the third day, you would probably see an exposure. But if you've given it, if you've given it two days in a row, you're probably going to see some sort of exposure any or like some sort of reaction anyway. And the allergy literature supports the fact that you should be more careful about aller allergies. The, the mm -hmm. nine top allergenic foods, those are the things that you want to be very specifically careful about. Um, if you have a family history of allergy, that's actually not the, not the highest risk factor anymore for developing a food allergy. Mm -hmm. The research is telling us it's, it's severe eczema and allergy to another food. So like if your baby has a cow's milk protein allergy, like you're more likely to have other allergies to other foods. So if you have either of those two risk factors, and I think even if you have a family history of allergy, it's worth you know, talking to your medical provider, but talk to your medical provider about how you want to introduce allergies and come up with a plan. If you don't have any of those high risk characteristics, um, it's, it is recommended by the allergy community to just go ahead and start introducing them. So mm -hmm. the recommendation is just to only give one allergen at a time. So mm -hmm. like, can you give peanut butter on the same day that you give, you know, steak or something, steak yeah. or blueberries. Absolutely. Yeah. You just don't want to give peanut butter and yogurt together mm -hmm. or peanut okay. butter and wheat together. Like you only want to do one allergen at a time. Right. You that also want to introduce it a few times um, to, to look for tolerance. So that could mean like you give peanut butter for three or four days of that week to keep an eye on it. Um, we also recommend doing those first thing in the morning. So like you have all day to, to keep mm -hmm. an eye on your kid. Um, if I remember correctly, most of the literature says that the reactions tend to occur within the first, most of the time it's 15 minutes, but mm -hmm. up to two hours. And then there's also some, this is like a whole other rabbit hole to go down, but there is a diagnosis called FPIES, which is more of like a GI related um, okay. symptoms with vomiting, like delayed vomiting. Okay. Um, it's, it's quite rare, but that would be the one time that you see like a, a later mm -hmm. um, reaction, reaction to a food. So with those allergies, again, you're just not going to pair them together at first, um, wait for them to be tolerated. Um, and then, of course, you can give mixed dishes that may have more than one allergen in it after you know that they've been um, tolerated. Right. So with the few day, times a week rule, the research is also telling us specifically for egg and peanut that you want to keep those foods in the diet at least two or three times a week. Okay. It can be really, really hard to do that. Like, yeah. I feel like it's like if you're following the hundred days guide, we make it specifically. So you do those things, mm -hmm. but like, I can't tell you if I've done that specifically for my daughter, because we just kind of like serve what we're having. So our, our staff allergist has said, if you can do it once a week, that's great. Like right. 
Like the, the research has always been about doing it two or three times a week. So that's why that's the recommendation. <clears throat> but if you can do it once a week, that's really great. Like we're doing the best we can, right? right. Like the most <laughs> exposure. It's like, there's so much. You're like, you have to do all this stuff and oh, add in peanut butter three days. I know. <laughs> right. It's like impossible. And not only peanut, but also like tree nuts and yeah. soy and sesame. And it's, mm -hmm. it's so hard. It's just really challenging to get it all, all in. So what is the, um, the science or the idea behind the hundred foods and how did you guys come up with that list? So this is great. So we actually just recently redid our 100 Days Guide because mm -hmm. of feedback from families. But essentially, we as a team, so the medical the medical component, the allergist, the, the pediatrician, gastroenterologist, um, the dietitian, came up with foods that are really great for babies' growth and development. Like what are the foods that are really high in iron? What has really good zinc? What has, um, what are our good sources of vitamin D, calcium, et cetera? And they put together a list of foods that they loved. And then from a feeding therapy perspective, we looked at foods that we were like, but what, how, what things are going to help develop oral motor skills? Like, right. can we throw in a food teether here? So they're really working on moving their tongue around mm -hmm. a lot. Um, and then our food and culture um, writer was like, but let's think about things that we can throw in a recipe that the right. family would want to eat. So it's not just something special for baby. Um, so that's been super cool. And we, I think the new, the new guy just came out maybe in the last year, I think it was, we just did all the last updates to it. Um, and anytime somebody comes out, uh, like sends us feedback about recipes or about things, we, we take all of that into consideration and compile it. So we are looking at it every uh -huh. few months just to make sure that it is like it's working for people. Right. Yeah. That's, I mean, that was, we kind of did like random, we, we took from the list, but also did like random stuff as well. And mm -hmm. I just like, like I said, I thought it was so cool to like try all the different things. And yeah, and it just was exciting for them. Like I wouldn't have expected that my six month old would have tried lamb or, you know, ribs and all of mm -hmm. that, which is awesome. Um, what is your suggestions for parents with picky eaters? Like how to consult starts help with that? So first of all, anybody that has a kid under a year, try to take that out of your vernacular. Like a, an infant will put the stroller wheel in their mouth. They will put like a dirty, disgusting thing off the floor yeah. into their mouth. Try to remove the idea that your child is a picky eater before one year. Under a year, they're just learning. They're figuring right. it out. Try to replace picky eater with the, with the phrase, my child hasn't, or my baby hasn't made a decision about this yet. They haven't figured <laughs> this out yet. They're learning about this food. Just like try to change that perspective. Uh -huh. Once you get into the 12 to 36 month bucket, you're dealing with a lot of toddler, toddlery, toddler stuff. Mm -hmm. Many times it's really easy to think like, no, my toddler's a picky eater. They'll only eat one thing. They may only want to eat one thing, but it has mm -hmm. nothing to do necessarily with the food. It has to do with their brain saying, mm -hmm. I need to tell my mom what I want and how I want it. And I want it now. This is why every toddler parent has probably gotten in a fight over a banana at some point because you did not prepare said banana in the way that their yes. brain told you that was supposed they to be. Or <laughs> they, they asked for it peeled and you gave it to them and then they no longer wanted it peeled anymore. Um, so clearly that has nothing to do with the banana and it all has to do with control, right? So most of toddler eating behavior all has to do with boundaries and just learning to set respectful and understanding boundaries and recognize that our toddlers are going to make mistakes and we're going to have to guide them through those mistakes. Like, oh, it looks like you didn't eat a lot of dinner tonight and you're probably hungry. Like, should we go back and get your plate again? Because I wonder if your belly's still still um, still empty. Right. Um, so so that toddler phase most of the time is is just toddlery, toddler brain development. 
Um, we do have a quiz on our website, actually, that you can go through and answer some questions to kind of determine if your toddler is just being toddlery or if they're actually showing picky eating behaviors. Okay. Um, so picky eating behaviors are taking toddler selective kind of stuff to a whole new realm. Mm -hmm. um, typically, kids that are picky truly feel anxiety at the table. They, mm. they feel anxious about trying new foods. They feel that new food may not make them feel good or may maybe they don't have the chewing skills to be able to manage a food. So they're truly nervous to put that mm -hmm. food in their mouth. I think when parents reframe thinking about picky eating in, in a way of they're not just trying to be turds, like right. they, they really are nervous about the food that's in front of them. Um, one of the first feeding courses that I ever took had used an example of um, the teacher had gone to a a really fancy like state dinner in another country and one of the the foods that was served was grasshoppers mm. and so that she was given a plate of grasshoppers and she was like that clicked for me that this is what you know my my client what my my child patient when they're served like. you know blueberries they're thinking how i feel about this plate of grasshoppers right so if i had something else on that plate that i was familiar with and i could have a piece of bread maybe i would feel a little bit better about mm -hmm. tasting the grasshopper because at least i know that there's something there that i will eat so when it comes to to managing this picky eating behavior we approach it very much from a cognitive behavioral standpoint understanding that this has to do with fear and worry about food and help slowly helping children build resilience around tolerating these changes. Um, so our picky eating program that we have is in our minds, it's, it's practiced over kind of like a 10 week period, but sometimes kids can go through it faster and sometimes they need a little bit more time. But our whole approach is helping kids learn to tolerate change okay. and also give them the language to say, this is too sour. Okay. Or this is like, my my highly sensitive daughter, my orchid toddler, who's literally can tell you if the like tag in her Ugh. sock is like touching, you know, not touching <laughs> her the right way. Yeah. Like will not wear a ponytail, like a, a pony band in her car seat because it like touches her head wrong. Oh, great. Um, <laughs> yeah. Like she she will tell me like there's a little bit too much pepper on this. I'll be like, what? I put like the tediest little bit. Yeah. It's too much pepper for me, mama. Um, so it's, but our, our program is, is based on that idea of these kids are just very, are very observant. They, they can see, they can taste, they can feel, they can understand really the depth of what this thing is. And we're going to help them understand that change is okay. Uh, understand that change isn't going to hurt them. Um, right. and then give them the language to help communicate about, about the things that are going on. Even if they're really young, even if they're yeah. like three, four, five, you can do it. And so we, we do have that quiz most of the time. It's, or many times it's just toddler behavior, but we do have a very robust picky eating program too. All right. So you've told us so much. We, uh, I know the listeners have learned so much. I learned so much from this, but I guess I'd love to hear if you can share a success story or testimonial from a parent who used solid starts and experienced positive outcome of their child's feeding journey. Yeah. So I, I want to share one that's a little bit, uh, a little bit different. Um, but I'm sure this will speak to, to parents that are listening here. We, um, a baby or a family reached out to us because their baby was really struggling with bottle and breastfeeding and was um, struggling to gain weight and was really having a hard time, um, was refusing the bottle, was only nursing, but even wasn't nursing well. And it just was, it was just a really, really challenging emotional experience for the family. The child was about, I think it was four and a half months, but was actually showing really, really beautiful motor skill and showing some readiness for solids. So we, we held off until she was a little bit um, closer to six months, but we started guiding this family into how to let baby take the lead and feed herself mm -hmm. solid foods that the family was eating. 
within three or four days, this kid was literally diving into food like the mom was was in tears. She was so Aww. excited. She's like, I never thought my baby would love food. Um, and just giving that little one the opportunity to be in control and do it herself was groundbreaking for her. Yeah. And in doing that, she started breast and bottle feeding better because the, the stress awesome. in her own little body went down. Yeah. And she's like, I can do this. I got this. And, Aww. you know, and mom sends us video and pictures now and she's almost a year and she's just this like little happy eater that like will go to restaurants. And like you're saying, like eat yeah. random things at a French restaurant because she has control over it. And it was just such a simple thing to, to help this mom through of just let's let baby, let's listen to her and take her lead. Right. And and take a step back. Um, I think eating is one of those times in parenthood where it's the first time that we have to like take a step back mm -hmm. and, and stop getting, you know, we have to get out of our own way. Yeah. Um, I've, someone once told me that there's three things we can't control from our kids and it's sleep, eating and pooping. Mm, yeah. So it's like, like all them. Yeah. It's all them. There's really, we can never make them sleep. We can't make them eat and we can't make them poop when we want to. Yeah. And they, they always poop at the worst times. Right? They do. Oh my gosh. We're going through that with Willow now. She like holds it. And I'm oh, like, oh God, that's God. the hardest. Yeah. The it's hardest. really hard. We're like, we try to give her like rewards. I'm like, I don't know if this is right. But like, you know, just to make her feel comfortable yeah. doing it. Cause I'm like, I don't know if she just, I don't know, I guess. Yeah. But it's, yeah. Again, it's one of those things. It's like they feel inside their body. They make a choice. Like, and no matter what we want to do, like right. we can't, we can't control it. Mm -mm. Um, and so feeding is just one of those journeys where like is the first opportunity for you as a parent to just like take a deep breath, like, and trust your kid, trust your baby, mm -hmm. um, which I don't think any of us were brought up to believe that we should, that we, we never felt trusted as kids. So, <laughs> no. um, but uh, it's definitely an opportunity for us to just kind of like, let them, let them show off, let them right. be good at what they can do. Like, they have so many skills. Like, let's take advantage. Let's let them, let's let them thrive. Yeah. I and I, I can attest. It is so cool to see them really come into their own and like, they like certain foods and, and they're like getting excited about it. And when they're so little, you think they're just so little and they can't do these things, but the reality is they can. And, and that's just like, you know, with my, with my experience with solid starts, we have all of these things that we have to constantly be thinking about and doing and trying to get right and just trying to keep these little people alive. And mm -hmm. the app was just such like a breath for me to just be like, okay, like, I don't have to think about all of these things. Like I'm making chicken tonight. All right. How do I serve chicken to my six month old? Yep. Let me just look and find out. And, um, like that, that's just such a gift to parents to give, like you said, with your, um, the family that you just talked about, like the mom probably didn't even realize how much the stress was like holding on to all of the other things in her life. So, yeah. and if we can make eating easier for even just one family, we've done, we've done our jobs. We just well, you did your job with us with two, oh, I'm two so babies. Glad. I'm so glad. It's like feeding. I know it can be, it can feel so stressful and like our success as a parent, like yeah. feels wrapped up in eating. And, and I mean, part of it is you show up at the pediatrician's office and the first they do, thing they do is they weigh your kid. And so mm -hmm. you see their weight and you like feel defined by mm -hmm. that. And like, every like you see your kid eat or not eat and it's like you you feel like that is a reflection of your ability as a parent and it's so personal right and it, says, it seems like it's a reflection of you but it's mm -hmm. like you like you said you can't control it it's them you can't yeah. force them to eat these things and it's 
not you're not a bad parent because your kid isn't eating no we can just set them we set them up for success and then we let them fly right like there's really nothing else we can do and and like we started this whole talk off with eating and meals are supposed to be celebratory they're supposed to be fun they're supposed to be where we share Mm -hmm. connection and where we bond and where we learn about each other and if we can bring a little less anxiety to the table like Mm -hmm. we've won we, yeah. every, everybody wins. If we can just show up to the table, like just with a little bit more happiness, I think we've all won. Well, I think that's a perfect place to end. You said it perfectly. You, you didn't even know you were giving your ending. Speech. <laughs> it was great. Um, I mean, this conversation, I've been looking forward to this conversation since we've booked it. I, like I said, this, the app, um, and the program has given me such confidence in a mom and I rave about you guys to everyone. And I know all my listeners will find everything you say just as valuable as I did. So thank you again for sharing everything with us. Um, Your passion for empowering parents and helping children through thrive during their feeding journey is truly inspiring. We hope all the insights have provided you, our listeners, with guidance and reassurance as you navigate the exciting and sometimes challenging world of introducing foods to kids. Please make sure to check out all the Solid Starts programs on their website. You can check out their app to help navigate your child's feeding journey. And you can also be one of their millions of followers on Instagram uh, at Solid Starts, which I love following along with as well. Remember, every child is unique and the journey to establishing healthy eating habits can vary. If you have any concerns or questions, don't hesitate to reach out to qualified professionals like Kim or your child's healthcare provider. As always, if you enjoyed this episode, be sure to subscribe to the Running Wine Mom podcast and leave a review. You can also follow me on Instagram at the Running Wine Mom underscore. Love hearing from everyone. Um, and don't forget to share this episode with your fellow moms and dad friends who could benefit from this incredible resources of Solid Stars. Thank you so much for joining me today. Remember, you are strong, you are capable, and you are all amazing. Until next time, keep running, keep sipping, and keep embracing the joy of motherhood. Cheers. And thank you, Kim, for coming. Thank, thank you so much for having me. This was awesome.